holy, holy for me. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. If you're using your phone or you're using a tablet, super easy. You'll find it, Acts 15. While you guys are turning there, I want to say a, a thank you specifically to Pastor Tom 
and to Pastor Eric and to Pastor Jim. These brothers already have a heavy load and then in the, the, in the light of some things that our family has been through, uh, they carried an extra burden by covering for me. This is actually the first time I've uh, preached to you guys. It's hard to believe since November. So it's been a while and I'm grateful for the opportunity by God's grace to do this this morning. So Tom, thank you, Eric. Thank you, and Pastor Jim, if you're listening. Thank you as well, my brother. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so very grateful. First of all, what a beautiful morning it is. God, we thank you that all creation testifies of your existence and your glory and your might and your power. We thank you also for the Lord's day. We need it so desperately. Our hearts are so prone to wander. Our hearts are so prone to drift and you use it to bring us back to you week after week after week in a special way. So we pray, God, that this Lord's Day you'll sanctify to our hearts as well. And then, Father, we're extra thankful this morning for what Pastor Eric has already mentioned, that we're able to gather together, not only to worship you, but we are together, that we're family. We're not perfect. We fall short. We don't love like we ought, nor pray like we ought, nor encourage like we ought, but by your grace, you've united us in Christ and we are one body made up of many members. And where we fell, Lord, you are growing us in our weaknesses. But we thank you for the bond that links us together. And we thank you for the opportunity yet again to worship you together in spirit and in truth. And then Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We are so very grateful we would be lost without it. And so we're grateful that in your kindness, you left us your word. God, we ask in prayer now that your spirit takes the word and opens our eyes to it, opens our hearts to receive it, opens our ears to hear it, that the dead will be raised to life this morning spiritually and that the Christian that's struggling this morning will be strengthened spiritually and the Christian that's doing well and healthy and growing and their faith is vibrant, that you'll stoke those fires in their heart to a greater love and devotion for you. So God, this is your day. God, use it as you see fit. And use this passage of scripture in our lives, Lord. God, help us to understand what it is you want us to know and what it is you want us to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we pick back up in our study of, of Acts and we find ourselves in an extremely familiar chapter because we have been studying it for quite some time. In fact, this is the sixth message that's coming from Acts chapter 15. And in case you're wondering, 
uh, no, we're not going to finish it today. But I thought it would be good to do just a little bit of review because it's been quite a bit of time since we've been in Acts chapter 15. So let's take a moment just to kind of think back through where we've been in our journey with Acts. Very simply, Christ was risen from the dead. He appears to the disciples and many other Christians and he ascends on high in Acts chapter 1. And before he does that, he tells the apostles, if you remember when they ask, is now the time that you're going to re restore the kingdom of heaven? He never really answers that question. But what he does say is, well, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so from that moment in time in Acts chapter one, when Christ says those words and ascends on high and the Holy Spirit comes, what we have been seeing chapter after chapter and verse after verse and section after section really is the fulfillment of that promise. We've seen God radically change people's lives in Jerusalem. We've seen God radically change people's lives in Judea. We've seen God radically change people's lives in Samaria. And by the way, we sit at the ends of the earth, amen? God was changing people's lives radically in the book of Acts to the ends of the earth, and he's still doing the exact same thing today. And so in all of that, of course, as the gospel begins to move its way out further and further from Jerusalem, and as the gospel specifically begins to interact with different ethnic groups, both Jew and Gentile are coming to faith in Christ. And in all of that, this new one body made up of different members that's one in Christ would have to navigate some hurdles. And obviously those hurdles would include what do we do with the Gentiles and what do we do with the law? And then for the Gentiles, it would have been what do we do with the Jews and what do we do with the law? What do we do with all this stuff? And so one of the things that we've been learning in Acts chapter 15 is exactly how the church gathered together to solve this problem. And I really shouldn't say problem because that gives it a negative connotation. Because in all honesty, as you've heard me tell you many times before, you're going to be able to finish this sentence. They're not really problems, are they? They're really opportunities. There are opportunities for us to grow and change in Christ. And so what God had done by his grace is he had given the church in the first century in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas an amazing opportunity to reaffirm the gospel, to reaffirm salvation, and to begin to build their lives upon the truth of God's word and help the Gentiles find ease of their conscience and help the Jews do the same to unite us all again as one in Christ, as Christ intended. So, by way of reminder, here was the issue at hand. As the gospel began to advance and the gospel began to transform folks that were not Jewish, they naturally had to wrestle with the law, as I mentioned. And particularly in Acts 15, the issue at hand was, does a Gentile need to become circumcised in order to be saved? In addition to that, in verse 5 of chapter 15, once they make it to the apostles, uh, the, the strict Jewish believers, so to speak, stood up and said, well, not only do they need to be circumcised in order to keep the law, 
but they also, excuse me, to be saved, but they also need to adhere to the, to the law itself. And so that was what the, the apostles and that's what the elders and Paul and Barnabas needed to navigate. Here's what we've learned so far. The first thing that they really had to settle, if you remember, is how is a person saved? How is a person saved? I want you to think about that question while you're sitting where you are. Because you should be able to answer that question. That's as easy as the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Person is saved how? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we saw them reaffirm that truth, that that's how a person is saved. Now, the real issue at hand is what do we do with the Gentiles and do they need to become Jews? The question that they needed to answer there is, how are the Gentiles saved? Well, we also saw that they came to the conclusion that they did not need to convert to Judaism first in order to be saved. There was no two-step conversion for the Gentiles. It was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for Jew and Gentile alike. Then we navigated what is the relationship between Christ and the law. And when we did that, one of the things that we discovered is that Christ has fulfilled the law completely. He, no, he left nothing undone. He left no stone unturned. He fulfilled the civil law. He fulfilled the moral law. And he fulfilled the ceremonial law. After we looked at that, then we said, we well, you know there's another thing that they really had to address. There's another thing that they really had to solve. And it was this question as well. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel with new covenant believers? And here's what we here's where we landed on that. First, we affirmed as a church what the apostles and the elders in the Jerusalem church and other Orthodox Christians have affirmed over the years that the law is good. Yes, Christ fulfilled it and the law is good. Then we discovered we needed to affirm that the ceremonial and the civil law have value for us today. They are profitable for us today. When you read about the ceremonial law and when you read about the civil law, there is much that we can profit from spiritually. My goodness, that is exactly one reason why 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles lays out for us a lineage, if you will, of good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad, 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 good, good, good. You ever wondered why that's the case? It's for us to learn from. There's profit from that. If I were to ask you to show your hands for how many times you've read about a bad king and prophet, you probably would all raise your hand. And if I asked you the opposite question, how many times have you read about a good king that honored God like Josiah? How many of you would say I've profited from that? Every one of us would say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I have. And that's my point. And that's the point of the reformers. And that's the point of other Orthodox Christians that have gone before us. That while Christ fulfilled it, and we no longer are necessarily need to keep the civil law nor the ceremonial law. When we read it, there's profit for us spiritually. We also talked about the reality that we needed to avoid the wrong use of the law, which is really what they were navigating here. For example, that you did not need to keep circumcision in order to be saved. So that's where we've been, but we're not done. 
So we're going to keep going. I want to invite you to look with me at verse 12 in Acts chapter 15. We're going to read all the way to verse 21. The Bible says, Oh, this is after Peter has spoken and all of the things that we just discussed. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon or Peter or Cephas, same gentleman, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. We are his possession. Amen. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I invite you to go back with me now to verse 12. And I want you to notice how verse 12 begins. Peter, after he is done speaking, notice verse 12. All the assembly fell silent and they listened. That's interesting. It's easy to read over that, is it not? In fact, when we read it a minute ago, you probably were like, okay, yeah, big deal. So what? That's just a little commentary on what's going on. Well, yes, it is a commentary on what's going on, but I don't want us to miss over that or read over that too quickly. And here's why. Look at verse seven. Paul and Barnabas have already tried to have a discussion with this group of folks we see that in verse 3 and 4. But in verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, notice what happens. When the apostles and the elders are gathered to consider this matter, the Bible says, and after there had been much, what? Debate. It kind of clues us in on the fact that when they discussed this and heard this the first time, they really didn't listen that well. And I don't necessarily mean in a sinful way that they had their ears covered and they were just like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. What I mean is this was probably a very heated and very passionate discussion. And just like many of us, when we get heated and when we get passionate and we get fired up about our religious convictions and our biblical uh, convictions about the Lord, sometimes we don't often listen to what's being said, do we? And so probably... There was a very heated discussion that took place in verse 7, which led Peter to stand up and speak. So when you come to verse 12, one of the things that I want you to notice 
is that because of God's work in this moment through Peter and using Peter in a very powerful way, everybody quiets down. Everybody's silence. And it's interesting that Luke makes the makes the statement. Not only were they silent because we can be silent and not listen. Amen. I mean, just because you may not be talking while I'm talking and preaching to you doesn't mean that you're listening. Right. I'm the same way. Right. Squirrel. Sometimes there are squirrels up here. I get it. I get it. You're sitting there trying to listen and then you're like, oh, look at that squirrel. You know what I mean? Y'all are guilty. I know you're all laughing. You've done the same thing. So just because we're quiet doesn't mean that we're listening. They were not only still before one another and quiet, but they were actually now at the heart level, ready to hear Paul and Barnabas out. And I want you to think about this again. This means two things, I would say. Number one, this must have been a very heated and very passionate debate. And number two, Peter's speech was used in a powerful, powerful way. And Pastor Eric, when I thought about that, I couldn't help but think that this is an example for us. That when our hearts are sideways and when we can't find resolution to the conflict that's going on before us, we need wise, godly leadership. It's what we need. And God knew that we needed that. So that's why God has given the church pastors, elders leaders to help navigate situations like this there may not always be situations where we debate certain things just like this but there will and there are situations of conflict or opportunities that rise up in churches and it takes godly wise leadership to navigate those in fact i want you to go with me to the book of ecclesiastes 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 chapter 12. Every church is blessed beyond what we deserve, not only in Christ, but when God gives that church godly leadership. I don't know if we think about this enough, but not every church has pastors that are striving to honor the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now notice who are these words of the wise given from? Where's the ultimate source of of their of where they come from. The, the text says they are given by one shepherd. Well, we probably need to figure out what's a goad. And that's not a mutant goat. <laughs> okay, that's a bad joke. Sorry. That's a bad joke. You haven't had to hear one of my jokes except for Mark. Like in, since November. I, I've, I've had them saved up. Okay, sorry. A goad basically was an instrument that was used to prod a cattle along, to prod oxen along to help them continue plowing. It was something that was meant to keep them on track, to keep them focused, to not veer off or to stop working, but to keep plowing. And so the Bible is telling us here that when a wise man uses God's word in a wise way, 
it keeps God's people on track. It keeps them focused. It's like that little nudge in the side. Brothers, it's like when your wife goes, are you listening right now? Does that make sense? Notice the other analogy that's used. It's like a nail firmly fixed. You ever nailed something that didn't stay where you tried to nail it? Not very dependable, is it? Definitely not weight bearing. Definitely not load bearing. Not working out so well. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is saying that in the hands of a wise man, wise words are like a fixed nail. It accomplishes what we need for something to be secure, fastened, to accomplish its job and its purpose. And a goad is, is used in the hand of a farmer to prod along an oxen to plow his field. Whoa, don't get off track. Whoa, don't go this way. Nope, you go this way. Just prodding him along. Now go back to Acts 15. Why would I go there? Because that's what Peter is doing. In the midst of this debate and in the midst of all of this, we've talked about this before. Peter stands up and he speaks. And he's a wise man. And he uses God's word and he uses his, his experience. And he uses what God has done in him and through him. To help the people that have gathered together to get back on track and say, whoa, wait a minute, let's refocus. No, whoa, wait a minute, we can't go this way. Wait, nope, we can't go this way. And like in the hand of a good carpenter, he drives a nail that's firmly fixed and helps the people refocus. That's why they're silent. Not because he's strong arming them, not because he's berating them, not because he's abusing his pastoral authority or his apostolic authority but he is gently and lovingly guiding them as one would guide an animal or one would drive a fixed nail so i thought about this an application when we look at what peter is doing and we look at the importance and the significance of the moment my goodness does it not jump off the page at us does it not ring in our ears already the importance of praying for our spiritual leaders like it should. Like in our hearts, we should be thinking, wow, I need to be praying for my pastor. I need to be praying for my spiritual leaders. I need to be praying for other pastors. I need to be praying for them because they need wisdom that does not come from them in order to rightly lead God's people. In fact, if you went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and you were to look at verse 25, you don't have to turn there. But you can memorize this verse with me right now. At the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 25, very simply, he makes the appeal. Brothers, pray for us. Think about that. All of the ways that Paul has been used. All of the churches that he has, been, that he has planted. All of the people that have come to faith in Christ. All of the people that he's discipled. We go on and on and on. What does he ask the Thessalonians to do for him? He asks them to pray for him. I want to read you a section from a book called The Duty of Church Members to Their Pastors. A couple of sections from a, a brother pastor that went before us. When he talks about the importance of the church praying for their spiritual leaders. Notice what he says. I'll read it to you. He says, 
Pray then for your ministers, for the increase of their intellectual attainments. Now, Pastor Eric is a pretty smart guy, and Pastor Tom's a pretty smart guy, and Pastor Jim's a pretty smart guy, but for that second part, or for that part there, the intellectual attainments, I'll take that. Pray for me to get smarter. I need it. Then he says, pray for spiritual qualifications. You ever read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Those are character qualities that pastors are to exhibit and to show in their lives. Paul also exhorts Timothy, let your progress be evident to who? To all. What does he pray? Let people see that you're growing in Christ and you're not the same person you were last year. And so one of the things that you can do for your spiritual leaders is pray for their spiritual growth and pray for their ministerial success. He goes on to say, he says, pray for them in your private approaches to the throne of grace. Pray for them at the family altar. When you gather together to do family worship, pray for your pastors is what he's saying. And thus teach your guests and your children to respect and to love your pastors. He goes on to say this. We are talking about pastors to our people, just what God makes us and no more. In other words, a pastor can't be any more than he is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, you got him all, every part of it. And listen to what he says about the Lord. The Lord is willing to make pastors almost what they ask. The language is dated and it can be a little confusing, but here's what he's trying to say. When you look at a pastor, you see his strengths. When you look at a spiritual leader, you see their weaknesses. So why don't you pray for him to grow in his strengths and to overcome his weaknesses? In fact, it has been said by someone else much smarter than me that your pastor will become the person that you pray for him to be. That's a powerful thought, is it not? I mean, in our day, it's so easy to be critical. As Americans, we have freedom of speech and we can pretty much say whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and not really even feel the consequences of what we're saying. And so one of the things that John James is saying here, instead of being critical, instead of being judgmental, pray for the man, pray for the men. And he will become the man or the, they will become the men that you are praying them to be. He's saying God answers the prayer of his people. And my goodness, he answers the kinds of those kinds of prayers. He goes on to say this as well. Prayer is a means of assisting a minister within the reach of everyone. You know, in the body of Christ, whether you're a new believer or whether you've been following Christ for some time, we often wonder, what can I do in the kingdom? You ever wondered that? What can I do for the church? What can I do for the kingdom? Where do I belong? Where do I fit? I don't have the gifting of so-and-so. What does God have for me to do? Well, let me read it again. Prayer is a means of assisting a minister within the reach of who? Everybody. Everybody can pray. Every Christian can pray. Young people can pray. Teenagers can pray. Middle-aged people like me can pray. And older people can pray. Every Christian can pray. He says, they who can do nothing more can pray. 
the sick who cannot encourage their minister by their presence in the sanctuary can bear him upon their hearts in their lowly chamber. Even the sick can pray for their pastor. The poor who cannot add to his temporal comfort by donations can simply supplicate their God to supply all his needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 The timid who cannot approach to offer him tribute of their gratitude. You know, what he's saying is when we get a little nervous around our pastors, you have a part to play as well. They can pour out their praises unto the ear of Jehovah and entreat him still to encourage the soul of his servant. What about the person who doesn't know much? James speaks to this person as well. Maybe the new believer that's striving to learn all that they can about Jesus. He says the ignorant who cannot hope to add one idea to the stock of his knowledge can place him by prayer before the fountain of celestial radiance. What about those that are dying? Even the dying who can no longer busy themselves as a time for his interests can gather up their remaining strength and employ it in the way of prayer for their pastors. Do you catch what he's saying? A church is only as healthy as the prayers of who? The people. And who should the, be, the people be praying for? Not only one another, but he's saying, pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. Pray for them. He left no, no wiggle room, did he? Every one of us fit in one of those categories. All of us should pray. Then he goes on to say this. This is so powerful. Prayer, if it be sincere, always increase, increases our affection for its object. You ever thought about that? Brothers, let me encourage you in your marriages for just a minute. If you want to strengthen your marriage and have a better love for your wife, pray for her. Pray for her and pray with her. It's an amazing thing. You can't be mad at the person you're praying for. Why? Because God changes your hard heart. You go to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I can't believe she. And you leave the throne of grace saying, God, I thank you for her. The same is true for the rest of us as we interact with one another. And the same is true for your pastors. If you want to love your pastor more, the world says that he needs to love you more. The Bible says that's not how it works. The Bible says put him first above your own needs and we can do that by praying. Test it. See if it works. Listen to what else he says. Prayer is the best extinguisher of enmity and the best fuel for the flame of love. Why do you think Peter was able to be used by God in the way that he had been used by God? Because one of the things that we've seen about the church in the book of Acts is that they were a praying people. They were a people that prayed constantly. And God had caused these people through their prayers and the work of the spirit and the ministry of the word to unite their hearts in love for one another. So that even in a moment of heated contention and heated debate where there's passionate discussion taking place about the truths of God's word. When one man stood up and said, wait a minute, let's remember what God did in me. 
Let's remember what God did through me. Let's remember how God works and worked. Everybody fell silent and everybody listened and everybody's hearts were then entombed to the throne of grace. A healthy church prays for its leaders. Now let's keep going. Notice the text. Paul and Barnabas repeat what they've already said, because like I mentioned earlier in verses three and four, they're basically saying the same thing that they've already said again. Paul and Barnabas testify to God's work in verse 12. The signs that accomplished the gospel ministry, the amazing work of God that accomplished their gospel ministry and the audience that was changed by the gospel in verse 12 are the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So Peter has spoken, and then I want you to notice in verse 13, James stands up and speaks. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is the same James that at one point in his life rejected Christ, but later came to faith in Christ. And notice what he says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, I know probably you really want me to get to verses 19 through 21, don't you? Because that whole thing about being strangled and that whole thing about abstaining from things with blood, like that's where we really want to go first, isn't it? I mean, that's what he said, and we'll get to that next week. But, Pastor Eric, James is a good biblical counselor because before he gives the practical advice, before he gives the counsel on what they were to do practically, he has to lay the foundation first about God and God's character. Because all of our actions and all of the things that we're called to do should flow out of our interaction with the word and God's character. So I know we want to go to the practical. And what does all that mean? But I don't want you to miss what James does first. Peter has given his experience and James relates to his experience and takes his experience and brings it underneath the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. That's what he does. Don't miss that. Our experience doesn't trump scripture. We believe in sola scriptura. Scripture is our authority. We believe that scripture is inerrant. We believe that we go to the word and see what the word says and we submit our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes every motive of our heart and yes our human experience to the word so even though it was peter don't miss this even though it was peter that stood up and gave this testimony even peter's experience had to be brought where underneath the authority of the word and that's what he's doing here in verses 16 and 17 and you can look at this later and you can look at this on your own in your own time. He is quoting from Amos chapter nine. If you went to Amos chapter nine, you would see that he's drawing from verses 11 and verses 12. Verse 11, 
and verse 12 of Amos 9. He's going back to the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time. And he's saying, wait a minute. God's already spoken. God's already prophesied. The prophets already agree with what Peter has said. We're going to take his experience, bring it underneath the authority of the word. And I want you to notice with me in verse 16 and verse 17, the dot that James connects. And Pastor Eric read these for us in our call to worship. Verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. This was a prophecy of Christ, the Messiah, reestablishing David's throne, the kingdom, because Christ would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that's what James is taking them to. He's taking them to the fact that this Messiah that's come, Jesus Christ, that saves sinners, he's the one that was promised. Let us not forget that, brothers. Let us not forget that, sisters. That's what he's saying. Let us not forget this. That everything about this one who changes hearts and changes lives, both Jew and Gentile alike, is the one that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he would rule and he would reign forever. He would repair and he would restore what's broken. By the way, when Christ makes things new, what, is ex what, exactly is he what exactly is he doing? He's restoring what was broken. He was restoring what Adam failed to do. He's restoring that broken relationship with God. He's restoring that old sin nature and making it new. And in verse 17, what is he talking about here? That the remnant of mankind, including all Jew and Gentile alike, that they may seek the Lord because of Christ and Christ's work. And all the Gentiles who are called by Christ's name, says the Lord. They're all going to come to faith in Christ when they're called and respond to repentance and faith. He's looking to what covenant? What covenant did Pastor Eric read in Genesis chapter 12? The Abrahamic covenant. This is what he's doing. He's connecting the dots that Abraham was promised by God in the Abrahamic covenant that it would be through his line. The Messiah would come. And when the Messiah came, he would not only restore what's broken. He would not only make all things new, but salvation would come to the ends of the earth through this Messiah. It's really awesome. This is what James is doing. James is reorienting their hearts around the promises of the Bible concerning the Messiah. That there would be one that would come that would rule and reign forever. And this one that would come would save both Jew and Gentile alike. So what are we to do with all of this? Let me land the plane with giving four specific applications. Number one. Number one, we must follow James' example in the church and in the home and in our friendships. We must give godly counsel that's in line with the word. But there's a temptation, is there not? You know, one thing that James doesn't do is give cultural answers. 
One thing that James doesn't do is give answers that would have been popular for the day. One thing that he doesn't do is capitulate to Peter. And one thing that he doesn't do is to capitulate to the Judaizers. But what he does do is he stands on the word of God. And his counsel that he gives comes from the word of God. Remember that for next week. That all of the things he calls them to do come from these truths I've just shared with you. So the word of God is the foundation for his counsel. And if we're not careful, and especially if we're not in the word, we will give things that sound right. We may give things that look right, but we unfortunately will not give good counsel from the word of God. After all, how can you give godly counsel if you're not in the word? You can't. You can't. Number two. Number two. Let me back up the number one real quick. Sorry. Number one. This is not only in the church, but specifically also in the home. I just want you to think about that. Are you parents and grandparents parenting and grandparenting the Bible? Think about that. Number two, we must be willing to lay aside our thoughts and our ideas that have, that have been influenced by culture and submit to the word of God. We must be willing to do that. We need to be praying for that on a regular basis. Our prayer should really be the prayer of the man in the Gospels when he asked Christ to help him with his daughter that was sick. And he said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Truthfully, that's where we live, is it not? Our faith, brothers and sisters, is not nearly as strong as we think it is. Our faith is often very weak, faltering, and struggling. We must always be submitting to the word of God. And finally, number three, a church that doesn't submit to the word will be weak, worldly, and unhealthy. A church that doesn't submit to the word will be weak, worldly, and unhealthy. And we're going to read about, not next week, but the following time, Lord willing, if I have an opportunity to preach again. Later in Acts 15, at how the Gentiles respond to the wise counsel of James and how it does not cause the church to be weaker, but it causes the church to be stronger. It really is no different, we could say, than when someone tells me or tells Pastor Eric or tells Pastor Jim, after we get done preaching to them and the spirit of God has moved in their hearts when they say something along the lines of, I needed that today. That was for me today. As Southerners, we say, you stepped on my toes today. What are we ultimately saying? I'm a healthier Christian. I've repented of my sins. I'm moving forward in faith in my walk. I may not be fast, but I'm moving. Because of the ministry of the word of God, both publicly and privately. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you save anyone and everyone who comes to you in repentance and faith. We must believe that Jesus is Lord. We must believe that Jesus is God. We must believe that Jesus lived the life 
that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved, was buried and rose again three days later and ascended on high and praise Jesus is returning. And our response to that good news is repentance and faith. God, thank you that you can save people today still just like you did in the first century. In fact, even now, God, I pray if there's anyone under the sound of my voice or listening online that's never repented and believed, maybe they've thought about it. Maybe they've been drawn and wooed and and convicted by your spirit, but they've never genuinely repented and believed. God, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. And then I also thank you, Father, that you have made this really super duper easy. We as your people have been given your word and your spirit to lead God, direct us. And we are called to fall underneath your lordship. Oh, God, we want our church to be healthy and we want our church to be strong and we want our relationships to be centered on Christ. And we want our relationships to be growing in love. And the way that happens is when we are reading and applying your word and we're not living life apart from your word. Forgive us, Lord, where we fail you. We often stumble, as I've mentioned, and and struggle and fall short. But thank you that you never give up on us. God, as we sing our last song, God, may our heart be stirred with affection out of great love for you and what you've done for us in Christ and the fact that you've given us your word. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we bring our service to a close by singing our last song.